the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a minute before 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Southern California Live here on KKLA and KPRZ. I'm Bob Lapine. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday afternoon as we uh, get together to talk today about, I want to talk about the pandemic. And I know some of you are going, I don't want to hear anymore. I am so up to here with conversation about the pandemic. Well, hang on. I want to talk about a different pandemic, not the one that's been around for less than two years now, but one that's been around a lot longer than that. I want to talk about a pandemic. Well, let me set it up for you this way. When I was about 10 years old, I was a Boy Scout. Maybe I was a Cub Scout. I don't know when I switched from Cub Scouts to Boy Scouts, but our our troop or our pack used to be involved in a periodic paper drive. Some of you are old enough to remember before recycling became common, uh, people used to save their newspapers. Some of you are old enough to remember newspapers. <laughs> save their newspapers, their magazines, they'd put them aside in a paper sack and uh, let those stack up in the garage until it was time for the paper drive. And then on a Saturday morning, you would take the newspapers or the magazines, the sacks you had, you'd put them out at the curb. And we Boy Scouts would come along in our parents' station wagons, and we would load up the back of the station wagon with these sacks of uh, filled up with newspaper. We'd take them to a big trailer. We'd dump them in the trailer, and that was early recycling. We would make a little money, I, I guess, for the—I I wasn't ever sure why we did it, other than it was good civic duty, but I think there was a little money that came back to the Boy Scouts as a result of being involved in the paper drive. So I'm about 10 years old. It's a Saturday morning. I'm out in the back of somebody's station wagon. In fact, these were the days when you would you would put down the uh, the the back the, the the back platform on the station wagon. You'd open the door by by lowering it, putting down the seat, and we'd just sit on the back of the of the station wagon riding along. This was before things like car seats and seat belts were a big deal, and we'd we'd ride along there and we'd we'd stop and pick up the bags of newspapers, put them in the back of the, the car and take them off to the trailer. And somebody's house, I don't remember whose or anything about it, but I remember picking up a bag and it wasn't newspapers, it was magazines. And we threw it into the back of the truck, didn't think much about it, the back of the pickup, got to the uh, to the truck where we unloaded everything. And one of the magazines slipped out as we loaded this bag of magazines into the back of the truck. And the magazine that slipped out was a, uh, it was a Playboy. And I saw it, and then I recognized that that whole bag was full of back issues of Playboy. And um, when I saw that, again, I'm, I'm pre-adolescent. I'm 10 or 11 years old, I guess. I saw that, and uh, I said, I'm, I'm going to stay here and just keep loading stuff into the back of the trailer while you guys make the next run. And you know why I said that, because my pre-adolescent curiosity 
was aroused, and I spent the next, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes before a, a grown-up came back with the next load of newspapers. I, I was there indulging my curiosity and looking for the first time that I remember in my life at these pictures. And and I remember it just like you remember your first exposure. In fact, a few years back, I was with a group of dads and sons. We were all sitting outside in the evening around a campfire, and I just said, I, I want to ask all of the men here who are over the age of, of 30, I want we're just going to go around the circle, and I want you to tell uh, the circumstances. Where was it for you when you had your first exposure to pornography? Not have you been exposed, because that's not the question anymore. Every man has been exposed. So we went around the circle. First, first person talking about his experience in college, another person talking about uh, a neighbor who kept a stash. I mean, this, this was back before this was instant accessibility on your phone or your pad or your device. So these stories got told with junior high and senior high boys here listening to their fathers and the tribe of older men talking about that exposure and that experience. I remember one uh, young dad who told us that for him in college, uh, exposure to pornography was not a casual manageable sin practice. It was something that became consuming. It was a a life-destroying, spiritual life-destroying habit that began to consume him and shape his life. This is the pandemic I'm talking about because this pandemic has infected more people in our culture today than covid and we may not have ICU beds and intubators that are uh, being used, but we have marriages that are being destroyed. We have rampant sexual abuse. We have souls that are being crushed because of a multi-billion dollar industry that is pornography. And some of you who are listening if if we were to if we could somehow hook you up and we could all share our stories you'd have some horrible stories that you could tell about your own exposure to pornography some of you who are listening are trapped in it right now and it is slowly destroying your life and your relationships and that's what we want to talk about today and we are fortunate to have with us a uh, a pastor, a friend, um, an author uh, for whom this is a, a a burden. It's been a burden for years, but he has recently uh, addressed this in a book that's just recently come out called The Death of Porn. He has uh, ties to Southern California, grew up out here, mom and dad. His dad was a pastor at Lake Avenue Congregational Church, and uh, this is where he grew up, and uh, he's joining us from Nashville, Tennessee tonight. Ray Ortland is on the line with us. Ray, thanks for uh, taking time out to talk about this important subject with us on a Friday afternoon. I'm glad to be with you, Bob. Yeah, thank you for making time. It really matters. It, it does matter, and I'm just curious why at at age 71, now in a in an emeritus status in your own church in Emmanuel back in, in Nashville, 
why have you said this is what I'm going to direct my attention to and this is what I'm going to write on and focus on and make this a priority? Yeah. Well, yeah, through many uh, years there at Emmanuel, I interacted with hundreds and hundreds of just fantastic young men in their 20s and 30s. Most of the church is around that age. And these young guys that I know almost never realize how magnificent they really are in the sight of God. So they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to compromise. They're vulnerable to giving up. They're vulnerable to setting, settling for an above-average life. And so I wrote this book to light a fire in my son's generation for them to believe again that they are men of destiny, they're men of significance, every woman is of the same dignity and gravitas. And when we see ourselves and others with the eyes that, uh, that God says that we, we can have really good things start happening and some really bad things stop happening. Uh, you said something there. You said men are settling for above-average lives. Don't we all want to live above-average lives? <laughs> well, here's what I'm th- here's what, I'm, what I mean by that. Um, I I wrote this book to one guy who is a composite profile of hundreds of young men I've known, and uh, I gave this guy a name. His name is Jake. I really like that name. It's a cool name. Jake is in his 30s, married couple of young kids. He's on an upward trajectory in his career, working hard. He's a great guy, Bob. You would love him. He's just a ton of fun. Um, goes to church once, maybe twice a month. Uh, and he's got this sidebar of porn in his life. He's not proud of it, but he's not alarmed by it either. And what Jake doesn't realize is that if he keeps going on the path he's on right now, in 10 years, his wife not, might not have any more feeling for him anymore. His children in 20 years might not respect him. And in 30 years, Jake might not even believe in God anymore. But he can't see that coming. Um, and so I, I wrote this book to win Jake over and win every young man over to believe again in their actual significance so that they have a new energized sense of purpose and a sense of destiny. You're saying that the key to freedom from the bondage that a lot of guys are are experiencing when it comes to the issue of pornography, the key is a deeper, richer understanding of our, our identity in Christ? Yes. Well, chapter uh, one of the Bible, page one of the whole Bible, tells us who we really are. This world has no idea who you and I are, Bob, and every listener. In this world, you know, we're part of a market niche. We're part of a voting block. We're, we're a unit in some sort of collectivity. But in the eyes of God, according to Scripture, you and I are created in His image. And that means every man and every woman uh, was designed by God for magnificence. The king of the universe created us in his image so that we can represent his kingdom in this world. We're created for impact, and every person matters. I really don't believe, Bob, that anyone is helped by being scolded and shamed. 
but anyone can be helped by being included and respected and encouraged and by rediscovering how uh, the, the tremendous purpose with which God created us. And, and Jake, who is li- listening to you and goes, okay, yeah, I'm not proud of my porn, but, you know, honestly, I mean, all guys do this. It's normal. Um, I can manage this. I mean, you sound like a you, you sound like a prohibitionist who's who's saying uh, we got to be teetotalers and all of this. But I'll, I'll just I just manage. I mean, it's like my golf game. I play golf a couple of times a month and have a good time. I look at porn a couple of times a month, and and nobody knows, and it's not a big deal. Well, let me put it this way, Bob. Thank you for putting it that way. Um, what if we lived in pre-Civil War America, like in the state of Tennessee, where I live. In this state, slaveholding was legal. And uh, there were, um, even among the Christians, there were basically three profiles, three kinds of people. If we could look around in that moment, some Christians would be slaveholders. They would actually be involved in the trade. And then secondly, other Christians would be passive observers. They wouldn't like slaveholding, but they would kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, there's not much you can do. And, um, and there would be another group, a third group, who would be active liberators. Now, slavery denies the image of God. Porn denies the image of God. And now it's our turn in our historical moment to prove that we believe that and to stand up for the dignity of every man and every woman. The people, Bob, the people in the porn industry are precious in the sight of God. Mm -hmm. They deserve to be treated with dignity as well. So I just deeply believe, and I wrote this book, The Death of Porn, because I would like to see a movement of young men in my son's generation, guys in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, who rise up with astonishment at who they really are in the sight of God and with new eyes to see the dignity of every other man and the dignity and worth of every woman. It would change the world. I remember somebody saying to me one time, I'm a dad of two daughters. He said, if if a guy came to you and said, hey, would it be okay with you, if it's okay with your daughter, would it be okay with you if if I just watched her, you know, take her clothes off and, and then just observed her naked for a while and, and uh, decided to, to just pleasure myself while I'm, I'm doing that? Is that all right with you? You don't have any problem with that, do you? I mean, there, there's not a dad who's listening to us who would go, oh, yeah, that's fine with me. No, we would we would all rally and go, there's no way I'm going to let you do that. There's no that you're you're perverted for even asking. Everybody who is involved in in the sex industry, every woman who's involved is somebody's daughter that we're talking about. And when we when we start to recognize this is a real human being who is and, and you talk about this in your book, The Death of Porn, who who is uh, probably drug dependent, probably going home and medicating after a day of shame. Um, who is probably being abused in in what she's experiencing. Uh, the image that we see is not the reality of her life. And she's somebody's daughter. If that was your little girl, 
that would make the, the, the switch would get flipped. Well, she's somebody's little girl. And when we remember the humanity of that person, it does have an impact on how we understand what it is we're doing if we're looking at porn. That's right. God did not create that woman to be objectified, monetized, and degraded. Um, Bob, I, I'm actually a, a big believer that Satan is real. <laughs> I find the, the biblical teaching about Satan oddly comforting, <laughs> because it means that we human beings are not directly responsible for all the evil in the world today. And uh, so that's good to know. But uh, when I ask myself the question, who stands to gain by spreading throughout our culture the total denial of every human being's dignity? Porn communicates. Porn is evangelism. Porn is recruiting. Porn comes out of a total worldview. It brings with it a total worldview. It's not about sex, really. It's recruiting for the total denial of God, the total denial of the gospel, and the total um, commercialization of human beings, including the users of the porn. And you and I are not okay with that. And when we understand what porn is, it's a belief system. It's not just entertainment. Then it stops being a possibly allowable sidebar entertainment, and it becomes an enemy I want to fight. And I want to help every man and every woman stand tall and love life again. And that's why I wrote this book. I would like to convince everybody they really matter way too much ever to get involved in porn. Ray Ortland is joining us. He, the book he's talking about, it's called The Death of Porn. I have some friends at a church in Denver who are getting their men together regularly to go through the six letters, because that's what this book is. It's a series of six letters that you've written to Jake, uh, to young men, to talk about this issue. And when guys get together... And when guys wrestle with this issue together, when we can get it out of the darkness and the hidden kind of, you know, after everybody's gone to bed, that's when I fire up the computer or that's when I sneak away and, and do that. When, when we as men can sit around and go, okay, this is something we're all confronted with. We're all uh, faced with temptation for uh, some of us are falling to it regularly. I, I think that in that community, Ray, to, to have our minds renewed, I think that's the path for for liberation for a lot of men, don't you think? I do. And, and Bob, I'm not saying uh, this is – I'm not speaking to, to our listeners right now saying this is your problem. I'm saying this is our problem. And I want to stand with everyone within earshot and say, I want to be your ally. I want to be your advocate. Um, I want to be your your partner in fighting for a better future for you and for every man and woman on the face of the earth. I want to see a movement begin, Bob. I think we are so tired of being degraded and insulted in the modern world and treated in subhuman ways. What if we say, by God's grace, with his help and for his glory, 
I'm not putting up with that anymore. And I'm going to fight for my dignity. I'm going to fight for a new life for me. And I want to get with other people who feel the way I do. And let's band together as allies and as comrades in fighting for a better future for ourselves and for our kids. Porn is really lousy sex education, Mm. (laughs) but it's finding its way to our kids, too. It's the dominant form of sex education. Most kids who are learning about sex today are learning about it from from media, from whatever they're being exposed to. And and I, I think you're right. This is something that is all of our problem. Although I, I have to tell you, Ray, as I was preparing for our conversation, I, I just Googled the phrase war on porn. And what came up is a number of websites that are saying, well, the moralistic crusaders are back and they they're trying to do away with porn in our day and we have to stand against them and and keep our access to porn alive and available i guess there is a segment of the population that sees this as liberating and life-giving yeah well and i don't blame them because um christians like me often have been overbearing and sort of uh, we have been moralistic nags so I understand that that hesitation, that reservation, that pushback. I, I kind of I'm on their side, really. But I just I just believe that um, that the cause we all can rally around is the worth and stature of every single member of the human race, and I I don't believe that an eight or ten year old girl. Growing up in a loving home makes it her life goal to end up on a porn site. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend who used to be in that industry. Now she's just a radiant uh, Christian believer and a, a, just a precious friend of ours. And uh, she says, when, when I was in that world, I would have given my right arm to be anywhere else. But there were forces at work that kept her there. And that story is told over and over again. Bob, the people inside the porn industry, my wife and I would love to have them over for dinner tonight and just have a nice conversation together and be friends. And we would give them the best meal we could provide, and and we would respect them and enjoy them. We'd have a great time together. I'm not mad at those people. They're doing the best they can without Jesus. Hmm. <laughs> and he is not—he he is not angry at them. His heart is tender for them. They are precious in his sight. And anyone who's listening, who's involved in the porn industry, I just want to say to you: you are dear to God. I, I want to dare you to believe that you are dear to God. You might not be dear to anybody else on the face of the earth. But the way they treat you is not the truth about you. How God feels about you is the truth about you. And you are dear and you are precious to him. Why not go ahead and believe that and see where that takes you for a change? Hmm. We're talking with Pastor Ray Ortland. His new book is called The Death of Porn. And um, I want to ask you about your own experience with this as a man, but we've got to take a quick time out. We'll continue the conversation. And by the way, if you want to call in and share your story or share where you are in your battle 
with this, you're welcome to join us at 888-528-2557. That's 888-52-TALKS. Lines are open as we talk with Ray Ortland this afternoon on Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. We'll be right back. It's 28 past 3, Friday afternoon on Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. I'm Bob Lapine sitting in this afternoon. We're talking about the pandemic, about the pandemic that's been around for a long time, a lot longer than COVID, the pandemic of porn that is infecting the soul of our nation. Ray Ortland is joining us. He's written a book called The Death of Porn. And, and I just want to ask Ray about your experience growing up, I, I shared about being a Boy Scout and seeing porn for the first time on a paper drive. Do you remember your first exposure? You know, that that was such a fascinating story. And it got me searching my own memory. Bob, I don't remember, hmm. um, which is a little bit surprising to me. But I do remember with with profound regret the time when I shared porn with a friend of mine. Hmm. And it was his first exposure, and that was my fault. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that was one of the bad low moments of my life, for sure. I came home from a business trip. This was years ago, and Marianne and I had both been gone. And this was back in the day. We had one computer in the living room, um, so it was there to be only – you could only use it in public, right? And we had set up on the computer a, a, a program – that would every 30 seconds that the computer was on, it would take a screenshot. And so I could come back and I could see who had used the computer for what purposes just by running through the screenshots and seeing what was on here. And so I got back from the trip, and I don't think I did it right away, but maybe the next night I pulled up that folder and started running through the screenshots, and there were images that popped up. And it was clear to me that uh, one of my sons, while we had been gone, had been curious, and I don't know what he typed into the search engine, but it doesn't take much these days to get you what you're looking for, and yep. um, so I, I was aware, and as a dad now, he didn't know that I knew, but I had to figure out what is my strategy, and and I have to tell you, I, I approached this, Ray, I think in the wrong way. I approached it as a dad who thought, okay, I've got to come in and correct and fix my son, we went out to lunch and I said, so how are things while mom and I were gone, chatted? I said, anything go on? I tried to to see if I could open the door for any confession, which never came. And finally, I I said, uh, did you look at anything on the computer you shouldn't have looked at? And that's when he knew he'd been busted and he confessed. And I went right into correction mode I look back on that and I think to myself, I wish what I'd gone into was empathy and saying, you know, son, I get it. I I understand the temptation. I, I face it too. I mean, it's not just something you face when you're 14 years old. It's something you face throughout your life. And uh, and here's how I've had to deal with this. And, and I wish I'd come along as his ally rather than his Mr. Fix-It father in this moment. I, I, I didn't do it right. In fact, I wish I'd had your book because we could have sat down and gone through the book together as father and son. That's what you're hoping a lot of dads will do with this, right? 
Yes, that's right. And and let me hurry to uh, agree with you that I've done the same thing, Bob. And I it, again, it's just prof- a matter of profound regret. And I am a sexual sinner. Bob, I'm not looking at porn. I really do love my wife. But um, if, if sin were yellow like the police tape at a crime scene, everything about me all the time at all levels would glow yellow. I never, I'm never completely virtuous. So I'm the last person in the world who will look down on anyone who is using porn or anyone who is creating porn, because I'm right there with them. Um, I am, I'm the worst human being I know, because I'm aware of what goes on inside my mind. Right. On, on page one of the book, I mean, I just felt like I had to own that right up front. So that nobody feels, so that everybody knows Ray Ortland is fully aware that he's stuck in the same mess as everybody else is. Anyway, so I say there's a brothel in the neighborhood of my mind, and I've wandered in there a time or two. It's a big part of why I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus. Never once has a stop off at that fantasy land made my life better, and never once has Jesus refused to take me back and clean me up. I'm so grateful. So, Ray, let's talk to the guy who is driving home and thought, I'm not even sure I want to listen to this because I already feel shame. I already feel condemnation. This is one of those besetting issues for me that I have I have uh, wept over. I've made resolutions. I've gotten a friend involved and, and tried accountability but it just seems to have a deep root in me, and I don't know how to get free of this. Uh, and you've talked to guys like this who, who are guys who love the Lord and want to serve him, but they find themselves tripped up by this over and over again. Yes. And I just I, I don't believe that we overcome our sins by willpower. I think, I believe we, we confess our sins to death. Um. The Bible says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, it, we, we want to confess our sins to God, right? I mean, we want to be forgiven by God, of course. But there's a sense in which confessing my sins to God is just a little bit too easy. Uh, I don't lose face. It's not embarrassing. I don't, I don't actually believe in accountability, Bob. I do believe in transparency. Hmm. Accountability can be used in a coercive, bossy kind of way. Like, okay, tell me your sins. But transparency is Bob Lupine and Ray Ortland sitting down together, and, and I say to you, okay, Bob, here's my mess. And I put it right out on the table. And then you say to me, and, and Ray, here's my mess, and you mm-hmm. put it right out on the table. Now, that's transparency. Gosh, so many guys would be liberated to enter into honest, transparent confession with other trustworthy guys, or even just one other guy. Uh, and the Bible says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's where the healing is. It's not in isolation. Uh, the more isolated a man is, the more uh, destructive 
uh, his sin becomes, the, the bigger, a deeper claim it makes upon him. But when, and I meet with guys, and our only purpose is to confess our sins to each other. It's mutual transparency. And Bob, it just kills me every time. It's so embarrassing. And the one sin I really don't want to admit to my buddies, that's the very one I most need to admit. And when I put that out on the table, and then they pray for me, something inside me starts getting free. And I, I just, it totally works. I want that for every guy. The, the reason we don't want to confess the deepest, darkest stuff is because of the the shamefulness of it in our own heart and mind. I don't want you to know just how polluted I really am. Yeah. Well, I understand that. But, you know, at some point, Bob, we have to just give up being phonies and keeping up a false appearance and posing. That just doesn't work. I mean, if we, if we go down that path, Bob, you and I both know it will not end well. But if we meet with, and I, I wish that every listener would, would, would say right now, okay, I know among my friends, I've got this guy and this guy. They're all in. They, they respect me, and I respect them. We trust each other. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call that guy today or those guys. We're going to get together this week, and let's – I need to call that guy, and I need to say, look, um, we've been friends for a while, and we've shared a lot, and that's very meaningful to me, but we need to go to a deeper place. I need it. Because I've got some stuff in my life that it's not working, and I'm, I'm heart sick about it, and it kind of kills me. But I would love to meet with you and talk this through with you and think it through with you. And I, I need you to pray for me um, and, and meet with that guy, get some coffee, and have a really honest, transparent conversation, unhurried, deep, and real. And Put out on the table what isn't working in your life, how you're not doing well, and ask that guy to pray for you. I, the Bible is very clear. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's where Jesus awaits us with healing power. It's in, it's in the embarrassment of confession and prayer. Now that's James chapter 5, by the way, guys, and I, I would say it takes a lot of courage to do that, and a lot of you are thinking, I'm not going to do that. And and I would say, then you're going to remain trapped in the bondage that you're in today until you bring in some allied troops to help you with this. We're talking with Ray Ortland, who's written a book called The Death of Porn. We're talking about freedom and liberation And we're going to continue the conversation. You can join it if you'd like at 888-528-2557. We'll continue the conversation on Southern California Live here on KKLA and KPRZ in just a minute. Stay with us. Fifteen minutes before four o'clock. KPRZ, KKLA, this is Southern California Live. I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking about the pandemic of porn this afternoon with Ray Ortland, who's written a book called The Death of Porn. You're welcome to join the conversation at 888-52-TALKS, 
1-800-528-2557. And we've got a caller on the line from San Pedro who knows a little bit about what we're talking about this afternoon. Welcome to Southern California Live. Hi, Bob. Um, this is my first time calling on any radio broadcast in my entire life. I'm 45 <laughs> years old, so it, it's a big deal to me. Um, I wanted to call in because I heard the last maybe minute of the author's comments. And one thing I wanted to state was uh, when you are stuck in a situation where you're addicted to porn, uh, regardless if it's one year, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, uh, in my case, the major factor for me was shame. And I had brothers surrounding me, my pastor surrounding me, all these people would surround me, and I knew they were there to help me. Um, But it was so hard to admit things because of the shame. And I think a lot of the times uh, when brothers, sisters, when we deal with shame, a lot of it has to go back to, you know, how do we view, uh, you know, discipline? How do, we, how do we view when people see us in a bad state? And I had to go way back in my history to really realize, you know, the effects of how I was raised, not to blame it on, you know, on, on all that, but uh, going to every man's battle totally uh, showed me that, and I just I just want to give a shout out to that ministry, uh, and I would love uh, for people to sponsor people to go to that um, mm-hmm. and just to try it out because it absolutely changed my life. And for the last uh, ten years now, the Lord has kept me away from porn after doing twenty five years of it, and I'm just, wow. I'm amazed. Ray, l- let me ask you about that issue of of shame, just because that's what. There's a, a song we sing at our church that says, "No, let no one caught in sin remain inside the the walls of secret shame." Shame is a powerful tool of the enemy working against us, isn't it? Yes, and of course, what we understand from Scripture is that there is no shame among equals. Shame gets traction only if we're convinced by the way other people treat us that we're inferior. I'm the one with the problem here. The other people around me, they're above me. Now, that's when shame locks onto us, and it's impossible to get free. But when we all together go down to the low place where we realize this is our problem, we share it together, we're all in this together, which is exactly what the Scripture says. Um, we, again, if, if, if sin were that police tape yellow, we all glow yellow equally. When, uh, when we are all equals at the foot of the cross, shame dies and honesty leaps into life and power. It's very freeing. I remember hearing somebody who was, uh, it was in the context of a political campaign where somebody was talking about another person. He said, well, that person, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a terrible person. He's just a, he's no good. And the other person said, that's, that's true. In fact, at our church, we, it's worse than that. We sing about this. I'm a wretch. Uh, It's worse than, you know, there is something liberating about, about stepping forward and saying, look, yep, my life is a mess and I, I've got all kinds of issues I'm dealing with. And and now I can step into the sunshine having admitted that, and, and there's help for me, right? Yes. The New Testament calls that walking in the light from 1 John chapter 1. And it's what we do together. It's when we come out of the shadows of denial 
and out of the shadows of avoidance and concealment and hypocrisy, and together as one, as friends, as allies, we step out into the light of the gospel of the grace of Christ, and we start owning our mess together and just bowing before God and saying, we need help. We all need help. Any group of Christian men who live in ongoing confession as allies, those guys will never be alone again for the rest of their lives. It is so empowering. Well, and I want to say thanks to the, the caller for joining us and for your story. Congratulations on 10 years of sobriety uh, in, in your battle yes. with with sexual sin. And, and Ray, you're saying that this battle, this this you said this is really all of our, our battle. It's something we should be crusading against. But you see that crusade happening, one person relationally, not necessarily out picketing or writing letters, or or do you think we should be involved in kind of social pressure to to try to shut down or or marginalize the porn industry? Well, I do think we should do everything we can to marginalize the industry, stigmatize the industry. I mean, you and I have seen in our lifetime how the tobacco industry has really suffered appropriate setbacks because they were selling products heedless of the health impact on people. Now, these a paradigm shift like that can happen. You and I have seen it. Now it's porn's term, turn. So, yes, I would like to see the industry uh, marginalized and diminished. But we don't do that because, by becoming pushy and by demanding. We do that by we Christians will get traction for real culture change, not when we point the finger at the people producing the porn, but when we own up to our own consuming of porn, when we start confessing our sins, when we enter into the weakness of confession, we will gain spiritual power. Let me ask you about, because some of our listeners would say, well, yeah, I don't, I don't look at porn. I mean, I watched that series on HBO, you know, that that one series that it, I mean, it had some nudity in it, but it wasn't porn. I, I, I and I, I go to R-rated movies, but I, I, I don't watch porn. Are we bifurcating too tightly when we say this is porn and this isn't? Well, porn is the wallpaper of our culture by now. And as I said, Bob, I'm, I myself am not looking at porn, but porn is coming to look for me <laughs> every day, and I've gotten to the place where when a pornographic solicitation shows up on my on in my online world yeah um i stop and i pray for that person now i don't know if the the come on that's being presented to me represents an actual human being or is it just computer generator i don't know right but th- if that's a photograph it's actually somebody out there and she deeply matters to god and he knows where she is right now, and he knows her sufferings, and he knows her needs, and he cares about her. So I just join God in praying and call out to God for her liberation, and I ask the risen Christ to go find her and help her and liberate her. That's a great strategy, and I'm, I'm thinking of all of the friend requests I'm getting on Facebook from people I've never heard of and I don't know 
who send a a somewhat provocative picture and invite me to be their friend and and of course I I delete that stuff without I, I look and say if if we don't have any mutual friends I'm uh, I uh, I'm not going to want to friend you on Facebook but but you're right it is coming after us in the the ads we're getting fed in our social media feeds um, and if all you're doing is clicking around the TV dial. Uh, there's porn out there more easily accessible than it's ever been. And this is where we've got to, we've got to know where the line is in our own heart and mind and draw it and stand firm on it. And I wrote this book, Bob, as a field manual for guys like us, guys of all ages who want to fight for integrity, not their own character as well, uh, only, but also as well for um, the next generation. Our son's generation, we need to fight for them and our granddaughters for crying out loud. Bob, I've got four granddaughters, and I care about the world they're going to live in. So let's give our lives to the cause of liberation right now and and see what we do with that. Ray Ortland's been joining us this afternoon. The, The book he's written is called The Death of Porn, and I would hope that there would be groups of men getting together, and maybe you go through this book and maybe it'll crack open the door where one guy will have the courage to say, uh, yeah, here's my battle and, and open confession and transparency that leads to somebody else saying, oh, it's okay to be transparent and to be honest about this, and maybe we can start a movement and start a wave on this, and I, I pray that your book will be catalytic in making that happen. Ray, thanks for being with us this afternoon. It's a great privilege, Bob. And thanks, thanks so much. To, thanks to all of you for joining us on Southern California Live here on KKLA and KPRZ. We're going to continue the conversation in just a few minutes with Greg Laurie. Stay with us. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.